Jesse, how's it going? It's pretty good, Katie. I'm dealing with a little bit of sort of um, personal intrigue that I'm I'm not sure I'm comfortable talking about on the podcast. Well, why don't you just tell me what's going on, and if you know if you feel uncomfortable with it later, we can edit it out. Okay, that's fair. So this whole segment, what I'm about to say, we'll decide at the end if it sort of makes me, you know, if I feel weird about it, we'll delete it. Yeah, totally. So on the Blockchain Reported subreddit, www.reddit.com slash r slash Blockchain Reported, someone asked if I had a girlfriend. And look, as soon as this podcast started to take over a little bit, with this voice of mine and the sexual energy it contains, inevitably I was going to become a focus of a lot of romantic interest. I mean, we talked about this, right? It was inevitable. Oh, yeah, totally inevitable. It was, in fact, one of my great concerns about the podcast was that you have too much sex appeal. Yeah, I said the same thing because, like, we're very, we're usually just the issues, just the facts, but, like, you have this sort of, you know, potential major sex symbol in me. It distracts everybody. That's not what this is about. Like, we understand I'm hugely desirable. That's not what we want the focus to be. Anyway. You've got this, like, the body of a pizza. (laughs) Just an upside-down triangle. (laughs) It's a classic hourglass physique, except without the bottom part. Uh, Setting aside Katie's body shaming, I mean, you know, this stuff's out open now. People are asking about my relationship status. So, look, I need to come clean. It's a weird situation. Yes, I have a girlfriend. Here's the deal. And and please don't bring her into this. Please don't meme her. Don't make this a whole thing. I just want to get it out there so there's no more speculation. My girlfriend is in modeling school in Canada. <laughs> God, you know, I had the strangest feeling that you were going to say that. Yeah, it's not what you think. So basically, here's the deal. Um, her name is uh, uh, Rachel. And Rachel, five years ago, she went to the Montreal University of Modeling to get a master's in modeling. <laughs> What happened was the first day she got there, the dean of students saw her in the audience and pointed to her and brought her up on stage and was like, you are too beautiful to just get a master's degree. I am officially enrolling you in the PhD program. We'll cover everything. Uh So that's the deal. She's really busy. She's ABD. She's done everything but her dissertation. Um, And we're separated now like because of the border thing. We we can't see each other. And it's just led to a lot of intrigue because like there's no real tangible evidence she exists. And also like my phone broke so I can't share photos of us. So all I can share are like photos from online magazines and stuff with watermarks because my phone broke. Also, my um, my my Google Drive is out of megabytes. So like I can't you know, we can't even it's just this weird situation and it's led to all these rumors and speculations. But I just wanted to get out there that, yes. My girlfriend is a, a gentlewoman and a scholar who's getting a PhD in modeling from the Toronto University of Modeling. Any questions, Katie? Did you meet her at camp? Yeah, I met her at a uh, uh, sports camp because we were both really good at sports when we were 15. And, and we had an on-again, off-again thing just from our mutual interest in, in athletics, different sports. Uh, and we didn't, we didn't sort of hook up until, until more recently. Well, Jesse, I'm I'm really happy for you. I'm happy that you found love with this, uh, you know, this Canadian model. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of disappointed, blocked, and reported listeners, but I'm happy for you. Thank you. Look, I, again, don't bring her into this. I, this is just to get it out there. People do not need to spread the rumor that I'm dating a ridiculously beautiful person who is both a model and an academic. I don't need those sorts of personal details out there. It doesn't help me. It doesn't help the podcast. Katie, let's just move on. What is the podcast that we're about to dive into the meat of with mixed metaphors like meat diving? Wait, I have one more question. Okay. How many legs does she have? I, I, that is exactly the sort of personal detail that I'm not going to reveal on this podcast. Because I was just going to like, like my, I was just going to speculate that it was four, but I, I won't press you. I won't press you. 
Katie, you're referring to this whole horse thing. Horse discourse is out of control at the moment. We've already closed the book on those rumors. Let's shift the focus from the horse thing to this, which is just a wholesome relationship between me and an academic, brilliantly beautiful person whose existence I can't prove at the moment, but will prove. All right. Well, I'll believe you. I mean, yay or nay? Nay. (laughs) Well, I'm glad we've got that cleared up. And Jesse, what podcast are we listening to? This is Blocked and Reported, the first ever podcast to be posted on the internet. The first ever one. It's pretty amazing that we discovered this technology ourselves. I'm Jesse Single. And I'm Katie Herzog. This is going to come as a shock to a lot of our listeners, but we're actually going to discuss some media drama today. Wow, something different. Oh, I do have something I'd like to say before we start. Do it. We did not, we had like a sort of a momentous occasion over, I think, the last two episodes that we, for some reason, failed to mark. Oh, yeah. Are you ready to hear what it is? I think I know, but go for it. Also, don't na- don't say the thing because we don't want to break the streak. We did not mention on the podcast for two weeks running, I believe. Two weeks running. If we had the technology, we would do a celebrate good times drop right now. I think we actually do have the technology, but we'll we'll uh, forego that this time. Yeah. So so this is a big deal because we had been pretty fixated on that particular book about that particular race's alleged fragility. I can't say it'll never come up again, but you know, it's like if you're um if you're an alcoholic, the first step is to go a couple weeks sober and I feel like we have a pretty bad hangover right now, but we're getting there. Well, the first step is to admit that you have a problem and I am willing to admit that we do have a problem. Even in the moment we were admitting that because every time we brought her up, we were like we can't stop talking about this woman and her dumb book. But um yeah, That's we, true. I think it's mostly out of our system. Also, since then America's whole race relations thing has been resolved, so no need. Did you uh did you notice in the big piece about in the New York Times um, that came out this week, there was a big like 9,000 word story about her. It was very fascinating. But did you notice that the outlet responsible for normalizing, for making go viral the term white fragility was none other than the Seattle Alt Weekly, The Stranger. This is the second worst thing they've ever done behind giving you a platform. Yeah. And besides laying me off, first was giving me a platform. Second was laying me off. Third was this. (laughs) I'm mad they gave you a platform. I'm even madder they took away that platform. Me too. All right. We can't we can't dally anymore. I, I will say like we don't, you know, there's a lot of other stuff to discuss in the world. And this is a particularly prime time for media drama. And, and we think this stuff is important because it's the question of sort of what mainstream media is and where it's going. But we have some other conversations on, on other subjects in the works. But this week, we have not one but two resignation documents, I guess you could call them, right? Because one was a letter, one was an article. Yeah, resignation documents. I like that. It's a new genre. It's the why I am leaving New York Magazine genre of essay. (laughs) Or why I'm leaving New York Times genre of essay. Okay, so the first was uh, Barry Weiss, who left the Times earlier this week. We're recording this on Friday. And she posted a lengthy resignation letter. The second, Andrew Sullivan, left New York Magazine. He did an article on the magazine's website. Why don't we start with... You decide. Let's start with Barry. Yeah, so Barry Weiss is um, a staff editor at the New York Times opinion section or was a staff editor there. Her politics are a little bit all over the place. I'd say, you know, Israel, she's she's right. A lot of issues. She's sort of centrist or left. But as we've discussed previously, she is, I would argue, disproportionately hated among sort of New York media types, including within her own organization. There had been a whole other drama about her sort of publicly talking about what she saw as an internal divide at the times between mostly between older and younger staffers 
we have a whole episode on that. It's called Barry Weiss is Right, which sort of gives away our position. But I don't think we want to sort of go back and redo that whole thing now. You can definitely listen to it. But this was obviously a uh, an escalation, if not an outright explosion of the, of the whole situation, right? Yeah. So um, how did this even come out? So she posted the resignation letter on her website. Was that the first... Uh, was that how this came out, or was did, did people like tweet this first? You know, I'm not actually sure. If- oh, you know what? It was. I think it was Vice. I think or some outlet like that. It was like Laura Wagner. I think um, got the scoop on this and just said Barry Weiss is out. And then somebody discovered uh, Barry didn't tweet this, but discovered on her website, like BarryWeiss.com, there was a tab that said resignation letter, and she had posted her resignation letter. Yeah. Which, by the way, when I resign from this podcast in disgrace, I'm definitely going to do a long. <laughs> letter where I list all my grievances against you. But this was not the sort of letter you write if you're trying to like be really nice to the publication you're leaving and maintain good ties there. There was like the brief boilerplate stuff up top where she said she enjoyed her time there. Very quickly, there was a lot of resentment in this letter, was there not? Oh my gosh, Barry was pissed. Um, She did not mince words. So Barry posted this on her website. And I'm going to read a paragraph. Twitter is not the masthead of the New York Times, but Twitter has become its ultimate editor. As the ethics and mores of the platform have become those of the paper, the paper itself has increasingly become a kind of performance space. Stories are chosen and told in a way to satisfy the narrowest of audiences rather than allow a curious public to read about the world and then draw their own conclusions. I was always taught that journalists were charged with writing the first draft of history. Now, history itself is one more ephemeral thing molded to fit the needs of a predetermined narrative. My reaction to that paragraph is the uh, millennial or Zoomer expression, where's the lie? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, where is the lie? I mean, Twitter has become the ultimate editor. I mean, they even, you know, when the Times did, we've discussed this before, but when the Times did away with their public editor, their reasoning for that was because of Twitter, because like comment sections and social media, um, they get enough feedback from from the reading public um, that they didn't, for some reason, feel the need to, to employ a public editor. Yeah. And I mean, I want to be clear here. Like the Times has in-house conservatives. They have David Brooks and Ross Douthat. Um, so, you know, you can't say conservative opinion has been entirely evacuated from the Times. In fact, they're represented. But I think in terms of the sorts of both stories and columns the Times would accept from outsiders, or I'd imagine that Barry tried to pitch, it would not surprise me at all if that window has gotten narrower and narrower. And, you know, when it comes to the small subset of issues where I, I know what I'm talking about, I think the opinion page has been consistently bad and just has, has often misrepresented stuff. So, and it's, I know people will use the Tom Cotton op-ed as a counterexample, but usually the misrepresentation is like in the direction of whatever woke Twitter believes to be true. Like most of the issues I think have been in that direction, even if the Tom Cotton one was what blew everything up. Right. And the Tom Cotton one, as a reminder um, for people who maybe weren't listening back then, the Tom Cotton editorial was a, it was a, an opinion piece by, by Senator Tom Cotton that basically argued for sending in the National Guard to, um, to quell, uh, to quell these uprisings to, 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 do something about the rioters and looters um, during the height of the George Floyd protest. And this, of course, caused a mac- massive backlash within the paper, which then led to the, uh, led to the resignation of James Bennett, and uh, who was the, at the time the opinion page editor. And as soon as Bennett resigned, I thought that Barry would be next. And I think that Brett Stevens will probably be not uh, not too far behind. Yeah, that one column ended up having such a bigger impact on the Times, like, 
operations than it ever would have had on public policy. Oh, my God. Seriously. I mean, and the thing is, like, on the one hand, I like Barry and I'm happy for Barry that she's getting out of uh, this toxic environment, which we will talk about shortly. On the other, I think that people like Barry and to some extent, Brett Stevens and Ross Duthat and these moderates and conservatives on staff, I think they really do provide a service. Um, and not because I agree with most of their perspectives. I, In fact, I disagree with Barry on sort of her her like major issue is is Israel, and I and I disagree with her on aspects of is U.S. foreign policy when it comes to Israel entirely. That said, we live in a time when our echo chambers, our media bubbles, are so separate that if you have a paper like the New York Times that doesn't publish anything other than sort of the the dominant progressive narrative, those perspectives are not going to be read by the readers of the Times, right? So by employing people like Barry or Ross or whoever, you're at least forcing some conservatives into the timeline. And I think that's really important, not because I agree with them, but because we need to know how people think outside of these narrow little windows. I think what's pretty telling, and, and I'm I'm stealing this point from the fifth column, which is like sort of our our brother or sister podcast at this point. But I think I think Michael Moynihan pointed out that like if you actually press people on exactly what it was Barry has written that they find so offensive, there is not like a thick dossier there. Like I'm with you in that there's stuff I disagree with her on, but if you take her supposed journalistic sins and then compare them to the general quality of the Times op-ed page, there's not a good faith case that she you know, represented some remarkable departure from usual standards at all. I just don't think there is. I, I've been trying to figure out why it's Barry. Why is Barry the one that pushes people's buttons in this way? And I, it's kind of hard to figure out. I mean, the first column of hers that I remember reading was her response to the allegations against disease on Sari. Um, and she wrote this column that was sort of funny. It was, I thought it was very cogent called Aziz Ansari is guilty of not being a mind reader. And I had written a column for The Stranger at about the same time that was, uh, essentially the same argument, you know, that in this case, Aziz Ansari was accused by this woman, um, a, an anonymous woman of basically being a bad date, being sort of a, a shitty dude, nothing violent, um, nothing that really, I think, should have ended up in the pages of any sort of paper. It ended up being um, uh, published on the website babe.net. Um, but so that was that was my first introduction to Barry. And that column in particular seemed to set the tone for her tenure at the Times. Um, it was incredibly problematic, according to some of the the more uh, vociferous advocates for Me Too, I think, in retrospect, um, when we see what happened to Aziz Ansari and what his, the, the turn his career has taken since then, I think Barry was proven to be correct. Um, but that column in particular seemed to really piss people off. And then there are all of these sort of small missteps. Like at one point, she referred to a, uh, a, a U.S. Olympic figure skater as an immigrant. She was the, I can't remember the figure skater's name, but she was the child of an immigrant. And Barry tweeted something positive about her, something about how, you know, uh, it was, a, it she was said, like, it's from Hamilton. She said yeah. immigrants, they get the jobs done, which in my reading could have referred either to the woman wrongly or to her parents who are immigrants. This was like a three day Twitter storm because Barry erroneously referred to a first-generation American as an immigrant, maybe not even erroneously, in, in, a, in a complimentary way. Um, and since then, she has just really been the punching bag for much of, of leftist Twitter. What was that? All right, Michelle Wolf did a fucking skit about Barry. Do you remember that? Yeah, a lot of this stuff just just sort of relied on this weird cartoonification of her. So like with the immigrants get the job done thing, if you think 
that she got that wrong. Are you saying that a mid thirties woman who went to college at Columbia does not understand that Asian people can be American? Is that really your claim versus she just, you know, had a brain fart or was referring to the parents? It's just like it, you, re- I think you and I among a smaller group of people are in this place where like there's such scrutiny on everything you tweet that like any little mistake can become a three day pylon for no reason. And it's, um, she's gotten it much worse than we have, but it's just, it's not good faith and you know there's critiques you can make of her work there's also a there's a strongly worded claim from um the husband of an opinion staffer that barry asked the staffer to get coffee the staffer politely declined and barry then mentioned it to their boss barry has claimed sort of in back channels there's more to the story than that but has never revealed what it is and like that's the kind of thing where maybe there was some stuff she did that pissed people off but that doesn't really explain just the sheer vehemence and vitriol directed at her. And and I've heard some people say, you know, maybe it's a woman thing. Maybe this is like partly misogyny that someone like her would receive just the level of hatred she's got. And I think it could partly be that. It's also like the idea of someone not on our quote unquote team hanging out on our side of the field, like either with the times or like, cause she's like close enough ideologically. That's like, well, she's almost a liberal. She's on the left on some stuff. And it's just, again, that narcissism of small differences thing. Do do you think misogyny could be a factor here? Or is it more that? I don't know. You know, I, I really don't because you do see the same treatment of people like Brett Stevens. Um, I think Barry gets it maybe slightly worse in part because she's more online than Brett is. Brett, uh, Brett left Twitter after after his last um, his last clusterfuck, <laughs> Embar- and, embarrassing yeah, himself. Yeah. Um, so maybe that's part of it. I think Barry. If I were reading Barry's mind, Barry White might say there's some. It's a lot of this is a reflection of her Zionism, her her Jewishness. I am not inclined to think that this is anti-Semitic. Um, that said, the world is a lot more anti-Semitic than I, than I previously realized. I've just noticed in the past like couple of days. Um, I do. I I've always sort of thought that Barry had this sort of hyper focus on anti-Semitism, and I will say she was a um, she was bat mitzvahed at the Tree of Life, the synagogue in Pittsburgh that got sh- shot up. Her father was deeply involved in the synagogue. Um, I think she was a, like it was a, a, a high likelihood that he would have been there that day. Um, and I think that 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 and some other experiences in her life have made her have this sort of hyper focus on anti-Semitism. Um, and I, I've part of me has thought that this was a little bit not overblown, but just that she's so aware of it that it's sort of like, you know, it's sort of like seeing dog, hearing dog whistles everywhere. Um, and then the last couple of days of watching the sort of dialogue around uh, anti-Semitism in the black community has has made me sort of wonder if I was wrong about that. And she's right. Um, do you want to talk about that at all, Jesse? <laughs> I mean, it might just maybe it's another segment. There's just, you know, this whole thing with Nick Cannon and then this other celebrity just saying bizarrely cartoonishly anti-Semitic things. And there's it was not just a couple of them, though. There's like Charlemagne the God said something, Ice Tea or Ice Cube. I'm not sure which one. And maybe it's racist to me not to know which one is which. Um, <laughs> there's been what see what feels like an uptick of it. Um, and, you know, this is there's anti-Semitism everywhere. There's there's the the sort of to zoom out to the most sort of superficial level, the relationship between black Americans and Jewish Americans is complicated and fraught. Like Jewish Americans have also often been on the side of black Americans in terms of civil rights struggles. But there's, you know, racism and anti-Semitism, respectively, on both sides. You know, I live not far from where the Crown Heights riots occurred. There's huge drama 
between sort of Orthodox Jewish communities and, and some black communities. So it's just, it's a mess. And I, I do think what's gone on recently has, you know, shown that a lot of this stuff is still there. I, I maintain that the U.S. is still the best place in the world to be Jewish. And my only encounter with anti-Semitism, other than random online trolls I ignore because they're 15-year-old Ohio basement dwellers, uh, was uh, – Is talking to me every every week on this podcast. Is talking to you every week. And then randomly an American in Berlin said something to me anti-Semitic that she didn't realize was. So I, I think you can – the truth is somewhere – between, I, I don't, I actually don't think we're a particularly anti-Semitic country, although you got to uh, grade on a historical curve there, he said morbidly. I also think it's clear that this stuff still percolates and, and, you know, conspiracy theories abound. But, um, should I, um, do you want me to read the next subset of the letter so we can get into her sort of more personal uh, resentments about her employers? Or was there anything else you want to add about her work and the general climate? No, go for it. My own forays into wrong think have made me the subject of constant bullying by colleagues who disagree with my views. They have called me a Nazi and a racist. I've learned to brush off comments about how I'm, quote, writing about the Jews again, end quote. Several colleagues perceived to be friendly with me were badgered by coworkers. My work and my character are openly demeaned on company-wide Slack channels, where masthead editors regularly weigh in. There, some coworkers insist that I need to be rooted out if this company is to be a truly, quote, inclusive, end quote, one, while others post an axe emojis next to my name. Still other New York Times employees publicly smear me as a liar and a bigot on Twitter with no fear that harassing me will be met with appropriate action. They never are. Uh, I'm, I'm tempted to repeat what I said before, where's the lie? Right. Right. So after this came out, Barry's haters, of course, were crowing about it. And I saw a bunch of people comparing this to the concept of safetyism, which we've talked about on a previous podcast. But after the Tom Cotton op-ed came out, and there was this huge outcry from Time staffers, and a bunch of them all responded in unison with this tweet that said, Tom Cotton's op-ed makes Black Times journalists less safe or something like that. I'm, I'm getting the, the wording wrong. But but that was sort of the um, that was sort of the gist of it. And then Barry later responded to this. Um, and she said that there's this, you know, there's this civil war ongoing in the United. Uh, there's this civil war ongoing in the New York Times. And it's one that's sort of uh, delineated by age, um, you know, with sort of the classical old school liberals, 40 plus, and then the young wokes, um, you know, 40 and under. And this was not at all surprising to me. This was this aligned with much of my own experience at The Stranger, where it was like everybody, not everybody, but most people under the age of like 40 or 50 thought that I was a literal Nazi and the old, old people generally liked me. Okay. Um, but a lot of people totally disagreed with her. They thought she was full of shit. Maybe they just can't see what was happening on. So in this thread about the, the civil war ongoing at the New York Times, she said something about how the Times staffer's response to the Tom Cotton column was an example of safetyism. And we talked about this on our previous episode. Um, both of us sort of disagreed with, with that concept of safetyism. But when she published this piece, when she published this resignation letter, one of the criticisms was that Barry was engaging in safetyism, that by by uh, by feeling unsafe or whatever, by being pissed off at her colleagues for being assholes to her on Slack channels, she was also engaging in safetyism. I think that's wrong. I think people don't apparently understand what safetyism is. Um, the concept was first, I believe, 
the, uh, coined by Pamela Paresky with um, with the Heterodox Academy, and that was first publicized by Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff in their book, The Coddling of the American Mind. And to me, safetyism is this. Safetyism is students at a college or people at an organization trying to deplatform a speaker because they disagree with the speaker's views and using the sort of saying like, you know, uh, ben, I said this on Twitter, but I'll say it again. Ben Shapiro's perspectives on abortion make me feel unsafe and therefore he shouldn't be allowed to speak at this college. I don't think that is the same thing as objecting to bullying on Slack where people can see it. And I don't think there's anything wrong with shit talking your colleagues behind their back. That is just a part of working. This is something that is going to happen. And because of new technology, particularly Slack, which is an instant messaging platform that many, many offices use, especially in in fields like media, it's just going to happen online. It's not going to happen on email as much. It's going to happen on Slack. I think that's totally fine. But when that moves from a private conversation of just shit-talking coworkers behind their back, which is totally fucking normal and totally natural, to a public forum like an open Slack channel or a company-wide Slack channel or, you know, like printing off posters and putting them in the office or something like that, that moves to me from being just normal behavior to actual bullying. I, yeah, I think there's a lot of disingenuous, maybe intentional confusion about safetyism. Barry did not say anything in her note about feeling unsafe because of her colleagues' views. She said she felt uncomfortable because she was openly derided on a on a company, you know, communication platform. And And she didn't say unsafe at all. No, she didn't say unsafe at all. But but what happens is like so I'll find I've I've sometimes complained publicly that people have just like really misrepresented my work. Like I'll say X, they claim I said not X. And then people say, oh, I thought you cared about a debate and free speech. But it's like, no, like having your views misrepresented should be outside the bounds. Similarly, no one – I don't think Barry or anyone else would care if people were sort of quietly making fun of her work. But putting an axe emoji next to her name, even though it's obviously – it's not a threat of violence. It's like they want her axe like fired – or calling her other names on the Slack channel like that, that, you know, you can't going into work every day dealing with that would not be fun. Going into work every day with colleagues who disagree with you ideologically, you know, probably would bring some tension. That happens. Yeah, that's normal. I don't, I just don't think Weiss or anyone else deserves that sort of treatment. And based on the different rules that seem to apply on public Twitter, where like New York Times staffers can't criticize individual uh, colleagues or departments, unless it's the opinion page in the case of the Tom Cotton thing, and unless it's Barry Weiss. The worst thing she ever said is she posited a general age divide. She did not call anyone out by name. This was treated as a horrible breach of etiquette. That's because there's very clearly a double standard here. And And if someone on the right side of this political divide had been openly derided on Slack by conservatives, that would have been sort of a national lefty outrage news story, or at least I think it would have. Exactly. I mean, if somebody had said in response to Nicole Hannah-Jones, the Pulitzer winning uh, reporter at the Times, oh, she's writing about blacks again, I think there would have been massive outrage within the the walls of the New York Times. But apparently that happened. I trust Barry that this happened. Um, And apparently that's okay. And her bosses apparently also did nothing to protect her from this, which I think that they should have. She like, you know, who knows what she'll do, but she pretty explicitly left open the door to legal actions. Like right after the paragraph I just read, she said, there are terms for all of this, unlawful discrimination, hostile work environment, and constructive discharge. I'm no legal expert, but I know that this is wrong. She at the very least wanted to give the impression of potential legal issues for the Times, which suggests she was very pissed. And, 
you know, I, I do believe her on the specifics, like something like an ax emoji. She, she wouldn't make that up. I mean, I, so from conversations with other people at the times, there's some really intense stuff going on in individual departments, like basically the stuff you would expect. I think some of this will likely come out. I think some screenshots will likely emerge and they will show that this is not a highly functional organization. And in fact, the editor in chief of the forward, a Jewish newspaper just posted a column where she talked about how even at the end of her time there, these, these Slack channels had become total destructive, distracting cesspools. And I bet that that's, you know, tied into what happened with Barry Weiss. I mean, it's sort of amazing. Slack is essentially becoming a sort of internal Twitter. Um, as destructive as Twitter has been, Slack is just as fucking bad. And it happens, you know, sometimes in the case of Barry Weiss, um, these Slacks will be leaked, but oftentimes they just exist only within the organization. So you can't, from the outside, you can't help see how sort of seething with tension these organizations are. Um, you know, and if this were just happening at the Times, I don't think that this would be a major story. Like I like Barry. I, I, I wish her the best. I really do. Um, and I think she, I think she was treated poorly by her colleagues, but the story of one op-ed columnist being treated poorly by an institution isn't, uh, should not, I think be international news, but the fact that this is not just happening at the New York times, this is happening at institutions all over the United States and the world means that this is a much bigger story than just Barry Weiss. Yeah, like, you know, especially if hypothetically there was an example of another even higher profile writer leaving, let's say, his perch, that would that would maybe uh increase the probability this could be seen as a trend, no? Oh yes. Maybe even on the same day, perhaps. Maybe. All right, should we jump to that or do you have anything else to say about Barry? Um, I am curious to see what Barry's going to do next. I don't have any insider knowledge. I am sure it will be interesting, whatever she does. Yeah, I also just think like the Times is continuing to clown itself. Like I, I don't think this has been a good couple months for the Times. You know, I disagree with Barry. I, I think she gets this and that wrong. Overall, you cannot have an opinion page that is just more and more whatever makes Twitter happy. Like it's just the the, the errors I've seen in base, like basic errors in columns that we're pointing left. Uh, there's a number of them. They're, they're, whatever quality control problems have been there do not stem from Barry Weiss, I do not think. But um, it'll be interesting to see what direction the page goes. And, you know, there are a lot of real journalists at the Times who, who don't think every conservative is Hitler and who understand the need for there to be like an open exchange of ideas. If the Times came to you today and offered you a job, would you take it? This would never, ever happen. A columnist, a columnist job, yeah, just because it's like the best part in journalism and so well – paid for how much work you have to do, which is like writing, I think, twice a week. Um, I could see it quickly becoming unpleasant if I, you know, God forbid I ever wrote about youth gender dysphoria or whatever. Yeah, you would really uh, – would you turn that down or would you take that? Oh, hell no. I would not take that job. You would not take a columnist job at the New York Times? Dude, you know how much I work right now? I'm making twice as much money as I was writing to talk on this podcast with you once a week. Why would I do that to myself? I've already been in a situation where I was the least popular person on the editorial staff, and it's not fun. It's not fun if you have to go to the office. It's not fun when you work from home. Um, and I, honestly, like, I don't care that much about writing anymore. <laughs> I'm a podcaster now. Podcast for life. You're also yeah. the least, you're, but you're also the least popular person on our editorials. That is true. That is true. Although, did you see the? Uh, I know you saw this because you put the poll up there. Um, so, uh, our blocked and reported um, Twitter account, uh, one of us, it was you, put up a poll asking if we were on a desert island, would 
Jesse eat Katie or would Katie eat Jesse? I took the poll. I so I said that you would eat me because I'm a picky eater. Um and I was one of only like ten percent of people who said that you would eat me and not that I would eat you. It wasn't even close. Also, I'm vegetarian, so this would be a moral quandary. Right. I right. don't view you as like having a soul or any sense of in- internal experience, so maybe it wouldn't be that bad. But yeah, no, our our listeners absolutely think that the end result would be you eating me, which I find a little bit disturbing and insulting. I did too. I've thought like, wow, my uh, my perception of myself is very different than other people's perception of me. Then again, I have been thinking about starting to eat kosher, and I think you would count. <laughs> <laughs> my kosher meat just by dint of being Jewish. <laughs> yeah, isn't that how it works? I believe so. I'm no rabbi. I'm often mistaken for one, especially with my current hairstyle and, and beard grooming. Uh, are we are we buried out? Is there anything else we should say about her? No, let's let's move on. Okay, so Sullivan, Andrew, Andrew Sullivan. Also, on the same day that Barry announced her departure, Andrew Sullivan also announced that. Today, this Friday, we are recording this on Friday the 17th, I believe. Andrew would be writing his last column for New York Magazine, uh, the outlet where he has been for the past four years. And that column came out today. His column was much more magnanimous than Barry's letter. He's much more thankful to New York Magazine. But he's pretty frank that, like, he got fired. He says... Well, well, okay, I think we need to talk about that. Because... in the column that so we got early access to this column, um, Andrew sent it to us as a favor because so we could record the podcast and talk about it um, without having to wait for the column to come out. But we didn't. The column came out after we saw the initial draft of it. And what Andrew wrote in the column that we saw was that he was fired. He wrote, here's a line from it. I've just been fired by a magazine that has every right to hire and fire anyone who wants it when it comes to the content of, want it, of what it wants to publish. And here's that same line in the in the published version. I'm just no longer going to be writing for a magazine that has every right to hire and fire anyone it wants when it comes to the content of what it wants to publish. So uh, pretty significant difference there. Um, I don't know the backstory here. I My assumption is that the magazine wanted to be a little bit fuzzier on uh, on Andrew's departure than Andrew was willing to be. But it looks clear to me that he was fired. Yeah, I mean, and then I'll just read one more paragraph um, that I think supports that. What has happened, I think, is relatively simple. A critical mass of the staff and management at New York Magazine and Vox Media no longer want to associate with me, and in a time of ever-tightening budgets, I'm a luxury item they don't want to afford. And that's entirely their prerogative. And then he goes on to to lay out some of the political differences. We should say that yesterday, layoffs were announced at Vox covering 6% of the staff. A lot of people had already been furloughed, and, and I think knew... Uh, based on one I have in mind, that they were already going to be laid off. This made it official. So 6% contraction across a company that's pretty big. Like there's a lot of jobs lost. And, you know, maybe that that would be the time you would cut back on, on as he calls himself a luxury item, because I'm sure he gets paid a lot. But I, it's clearly connected to the politics of it. Right. Yeah. I think we should mention here for people don't, who don't know that Vox bought New York Magazine. Was it last year? Either last year or two years ago. Yeah. And as soon as it was announced that Vox bought New York Magazine, my first thought was, oh, shit, there goes Andrew. Um, The values of Andrew Sullivan are clearly not in line with the values of of many people, though not all people at Vox Media. What do you think are what do you think are Vox's values? Uh, Jesse Single is a monster. Um, uh, (laughs) Don't sign open letters unless they're open in open letters, condemning open letters. Um, Trans women are women. Definitely that. And uh, maybe no more free lunches or 
free lunches, but only vegan, gluten-free, keto ones. If anything, New York Magazine would have gotten more free lunches after they came in. What we used to get, we would have a lot of free stuff sent to us. And the best day of the year was they did like a, a wedding issue where they would photograph a lot of wedding cakes. So I think once a year, maybe twice, it would just be like – Everyone would just know that day. You would just feel it, that there was a bunch of free wedding cake in the kitchen. And it was just like a free fraud. It was amazing. So did you overlap at New York Magazine with Andrew at all? I did. But I think that was mostly before I was considered problematic. I don't really remember talking to him with him or corresponding with him before that. Um, I've always thought he's, you know, he's a good writer and an important just historical figure in, in modern American journalism. But yeah, when I was there... I, I frankly didn't sort of think that much about him or his, his situation because I never really caught a whiff of this stuff by the time I left in um, mid-2017. So that shows you how much has changed in just the past few years. Um, and also, I think it's it's important to note here that Andrew worked remotely. So Andrew was not in the office. Um, there is, you know, maybe his ideas, maybe his words made people feel unsafe or uncomfortable or whatever. But he didn't have a presence in the office that would actually lead to any sort of like harassment. Not that I think Andrew would actually harass anybody, but there, but you wouldn't have these sort of tensions being um, being mediated in person, which in some ways was probably good for Andrew, but in some ways it might have been bad because as a human being, you know, it's easier to like see somebody and consider them human if you have some face-to-face contact and not, aren't just reading their words on a screen. That said, if I were him, I sure as shit would not have wanted to be in that office. No. And some of the blowups involving his work just show like how how gonzo this stuff is like you know he after sarah jong who's a, a sort of tech writer and reporter with a legal background too i believe was hired by the new york times to work for their opinion page she's gone now too or she stepped down to a contributing role um it was pointed out that she had tweeted a ton of stuff about sort of like fuck white people stuff that was seen as anti-white my view as always is i i find like anti-white stuff on twitter just sort of edgelord and and not nearly as offensive as anti-black stuff for obvious historical reasons. Sullivan wrote what I thought was a balanced column, basically saying like, look, this is in fact racist. Um, I would imagine a majority of Americans would have agreed with his column. But th- like this created a major online shitstorm because the entire Voxosphere had decided that it was bad faith to point out all these tweets John had done. And, and they said things like they were all in response to harassment, which she has gotten a lot of harassment. But it's not true that these tweets were all in response to harassment. So that's the sort of opinion where this is, again, an opinion that, you know, I wish we could poll all these questions. We can't. Let's say just 40 percent of people would agree with that column, which I think would be a conservative estimate. I'll link to the column. To get mad at someone for expressing an opinion in a mainstream magazine that 40% or more of Americans agree with is sort of the problem. It's this shifting and closing of the Overton window that just makes it stifling and hard to work in these places. You know, I just I find it kind of difficult to understand why people are so feel so threatened by words on a page, um, unless it's a direct threat or some sort of libel or there's some sort of legal problem. It's just sort of strange to me that people can like you cannot work in the same the same not even the same building under the same mass as, as Andrew Sullivan because you don't like his opinion. Um, I just don't get that. I don't know. It just to me, it's like it's okay for people to disagree. I at the places where I've worked, I frequently disagreed with people, but it didn't make me think that they needed to get fired. Yeah, although in his case, unlike Barry's, there there's you know decades of prior history and context. When he was editing the New Republic, they ran this big symposium on Charles Murray's The Bell Curve, and people thought. Of course, that he went too soft on that. During the Iraq war, Andrew said some stuff that I thought was egregious, basically painting war opponents as sort of 
morally suspect or traitors or stuff. I just, you know, that stuff infuriates me. Uh, but he also, he also, I think he's, he definitely changed his mind about the Iraq war. Dan Savage, by the way, was also in favor of the Iraq war. I think a lot of people were in favor of the Iraq war who, who, who realized. That's just, that's just because he thought the, the men in, in, uh, military uniform. <laughs> that is true. Um, yeah. But there was a lot of people, there were in the immediate post, uh, 9-11 years, months, there were a lot of people who were in favor of the Iraq war, even if not because of weapons of mass destruction, but because they saw Saddam Hussein as uniquely horrific. Um, clearly the, the Iraq war ended up being a massive, massive fucking mistake that we and the Iraqi people in particular are still paying for but andrew has come around um uh, come around on that which i think is what we want yeah he's, he published in slate i just i googled and immediately came up how did i get iraq wrong i seriously misjudged bush's sense of morality that's a piece he wrote that i have not read at least not recently in 2008 so yeah look again um people sort of do the same thing with david from where they don't judge him in the full context of his evolution on the war stuff and, and you know what for something in a decision aspect spectacularly horrific as the war. I'm not necessarily going to begrudge people if they want to say this is a black mark on your record forever. The fact is the vast majority of the stuff Sullivan wrote for New York magazine was, was by no means outside the mainstream. And um, actually, do you want to read that bit of the column, which I thought was good and telling where he sort of describes his own politics and how mainstream they are? Yeah, sure. He writes, Two years ago, I wrote that we all live on campus now. This is an understatement. In academia, a tiny fraction of professors and administrators have not yet bent the knees to the woke program, and those few left are being purged. The latest study of Harvard University faculty, for example, finds that only 1.46% call themselves conservative, but that's probably higher than the proportion of journalists who call themselves conservative at the New York Times or CNN or New York Magazine. And maybe it's worth pointing out that conservative, in my case, means I have passionately opposed Donald J. Trump and pioneered marriage equality, that I support legalized drugs, criminal justice reform, more redistribution of wealth, aggressive action against climate change, police reform, a realist foreign policy, and laws to protect trans transgender people from discrimination. I was a major and early supporter of of Barack Obama. I intend to vote for Biden in November. <laughs> He's basically a Democrat. Yeah, there's like a yeah, there's like a sense of resentment there of not being seen for what his politics are really are, which I I feel like we can sort of relate to. Right. Yeah. The the place where I probably disagree with Andrew the most is on immigration, although he is an immigrant, so maybe, maybe I should listen to his lived experience. Um, but for, for the most part, I mean. Look, he's not like Dave Rubin pretending to be a classical liberal while he's actually stumping for Donald Trump. Andrew is basically a Democrat, um, but that was not apparently enough. And I assume that most I'm sort of speaking out of my ass here. I don't know exactly what's going on at, at New York Mag, but I'm guessing that a lot of the, the staffers who took issue with Andrew are young, um, that they don't actually realize who Andrew is and his particularly his role in, in uh, the legalization of gay marriage, which cannot be overstated. Andrew was absolutely formative in that movement. And in other aspects of um, of of equality for for gay people, he's HIV positive. He's long been out um, out about it. He's a he's fucking like like fairly liberal gay dude. Um, but that's not enough. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of this the age divide part that really matters. I think is whether you were of political age during the Bush years, where. Uh, 
conservatism as an ideology i mean it's hard this is complicated i don't want to misphrase it but it's basically like during the bush years you had mainstream conservatives saying that gay marriage posed a real threat to the family and to society and there was talk of constitutional amendments banning gay marriage that's how crazy things were it really felt like the christian right was was burgeoning and could really take power under trump there are still legitimate threats to for example lgbt people like i think his policy on trans people it's horrible particularly the military ban which i just found grotesque like you're talking about people who want to serve the country it's disgusting but things are not as bad these days in terms of social conservatism so i think kids who weren't of political age during bush and grew up during obama when the country got way more socially liberal i i just think it's it's much easier to grade someone like sullivan on a different curve there because you've you've never seen things when they were really bad in terms of what I view as the fairly pernicious um, ideology of American social conservatism as it manifested itself during the Bush years. Like that was some dark shit. And people were just literal children during that and didn't experience it firsthand. Right. So Andrew is out. I think that is unfortunate. I think it's unfortunate for diversity of thought on the pages of New York Magazine. You know, And a lot of people would say, like, who gives a shit if Harvard professors or New York Times journalists or whoever have any conservatives? I disagree with that. I think diversity of thought is incredibly important, in part because it strengthens arguments from the left. If you only have people who think exactly like you, you end up with the Portland City Council or the Seattle City Council or whatever. Um just this homogenous, increasingly extremist uh, vision of the world with no checks and balances. Um, okay, so the good news is Andrew is going to go independent. Um, he, for years, he ran The Dish, which was sort of a highly successful early blog. Um, and he's bringing it back. He's bringing it back as a, a, as a Substack newsletter and as a podcast. He did not ask us permission to start a podcast, but uh, I guess I would grant it to him. Yeah, as the as the founders of this medium, uh, he should have asked. It was disrespectful for him not to, but we will give him a pass. Um, so, what do you think about that, Jesse Andrew going independent? Um, he's joining us on this on the the subscriber based. Um, I'm, I'm happy for him. I think this will be a huge relief to not have to worry about this. There's obviously a downside to not having a platform like New York Magazine. There's definitely a downside to not having editors. Like I, early in my paid newslettering career, I had a, a not catastrophic but sizable repertorial fuck up where if I'd had an editor looking over my shoulder, I might not have made that mistake. It was like a one day thing. I fixed it. There's downsides. Uh, Andrew does less reporting anyway. It's a lot of just sort of commentary and analysis. I think this is a really good fit for him. He is. I think he is going to have an editor. He's got Chris Bodner on staff, um, who is a former editor at The Atlantic. I think he literally right. He's literally pulling together another small team like he did when he was at The Dish. Uh, I think it, it'll be a great move for him. He won't have to worry about this stuff, which I, I'm pretty sure is taking quite a toll on him. Yeah, I, I don't know if we talked about this on mic or off, but I think you and I both have a sense that we're we're really lucky to have carved this out. Um, obviously, Sullivan will be successful at whatever he does. He has a large group of loyal readers. But there, how many of these sort of individual islands in the sea efforts can there be in the absence of like actual outlets that, that give people like us homes? Yeah, this is sort of the problem with this model. I mean, as good as this has been for us, and I hope it continues to be good for us for a very long time. Patreon.com slash watch reporting. <laughs> I'm not sure if people are going to continue to scribe to these, you know, to independent creators when like, let's compare it to the New York Times or Hulu or whatever, when you can pay $7 a month and get all of this content, or you can pay $7 a month to Andrew and $7 a month to us and $7 a month to Matt Tybee and $7 a month to Yasha Monk or Barry Weiss or whoever. 
I'm my concern is that people are just going to not be able to give $7 a month to all of us. Um, so they should clearly prioritize us personally. Um, so that's a little bit of the, a a little bit of of my concern. Um, I, you know, I think there's some, maybe some technical fixes to this. You could have a bundling program or then is it just another outlet, which, you know, hard to build. I think people are trying, but hard to build, um, and hard to monetize clearly as we're seeing from layoffs across the industry. So there's that issue. There's also the issue with creating increasingly narrow echo chambers. Um, you know, one of the good things about writing for a place like the stranger is that my sometimes contrary opinion was forced upon people non-consensually, um, who didn't always want to see it, you know? And I think that was good. I think it's good to make people be aware of other perspectives in the world, even if it pisses them off. So I, I am deeply concerned about these narrower and narrower media bubbles and just being able to pick and choose and only read the things that we agree with. And if you have, you know, a paywalled newsletter, that's going to happen. The only people are who are going to read it are the people who already agree with you or the people who support you. Well, and in fact, I, I enforce that as policy. If one of my paid subscribers disagrees with me, I kick them, I, ki- I remove their access to the newsletter and don't give them a refund. <laughs> I mean, you are an entrepreneur, um, so I would expect nothing less from you. Um, so that's another issue. The other issue is that it's going to be like you and I can do this because we've spent several years like cultivating a readership and cultivating an, an audience. This is not something you would be able to do successfully and monetize for the most part unless you already have an audience. Oftentimes, an audience given to you by a mainstream publication like New, like New York Magazine or New York Times. Andrew does does mention this in his letter. So um, part of what he says, so he writes, if mainstream media will not host a diversity of opinion or puts the moral clarity, that's a quote, of some self-appointed saints before the goal of objectivity and reporting, if it treats writers as mere avatars for their race or gender or gender identity, rather than as unique individuals whose identity is largely irrelevant, then the non-mainstream needs to pick up the slack. What I hope to do with the weekly dish is to champion those younger writers who are increasingly shut out of the establishment to promote their blogs, articles, and podcasts, to link to them and encourage them. I want to show them that they have a future in the American discourse. Instead of merely diagnosing the problem of illiberalism, I want to try to be a part of the solution. So I'm really glad to see that. It sounds like Andrew is taking on a lot of fucking work for himself if he's also going to be writing and doing a podcast and also championing younger writers. And I'm also really excited to see who emerges from this. I mean, maybe we're going to be entering into a, a, a you know, a new moment for the internet when blogs are back, baby. Blogs 2.0. Um, and Blogs are good again. Yeah. And so we'll see if that ultimately is, uh, is positive or negative, but I will be especially interested in seeing what Andrew does. Yeah. I just, it feels like a transitional phase. I think, I think unfortunately I don't want to be defensive. I can only say this so many times. I would much rather have a healthier media ecosystem, even with dumb articles I disagree with. If it meant more real reporting, I think where we're at now is a transitional phase where a bunch of us are who can hide out building our own things independently, which we've been lucky enough to do are doing that while we wait to see what comes next. And as I tweeted yesterday, the next round of, of media investment, I think, is going to come from Silicon Valley, and they hate the woke stuff. They really do. They really view it as an obstacle to everything they stand for. They don't think they've been treated fairly by media. They have all these complaints. So whatever they fund is not going to look like what some of these outcomes have become. But all we can do is wait and see. I am, in part because of my Jewish heritage, not optimistic about anything. I just, for now, I guess all we can hope is that like people actually inject some resources into real journalism. But again... 
not optimistic, so you and I will just continue to talk shit behind podcast microphones. Right, and hopefully continue to get paid for it. Yeah, I mean, you know, just this the same week that Andrew and Barry announced their departures. And this, I think this also show you, I don't think in Andrew's case, I don't, I, I think he was fired. I, I don't think this was a choice. Um, in Barry's case, she clearly stepped on on her own accord. But it is a difficult time to give up your job. Um, just this week, The Guardian announced 180 people are going to be laid off. The BBC is cutting 520 jobs. Um, Vox Media, as you mentioned, also doing mass layoffs. So really difficult time to lose your job. There's so many talented freelancers out there and increasingly fewer places for them to get published. So it's probably going to be much like the, you know, the ecosystem as it exists now, which is sort of winner take all, um, where the big outlets or in this case, uh, bigger independent creators will do well, and everybody else won't. It's not, and it's not a fair system at all. It's not. Our, our, uh, we're obviously both hugely sexual geniuses, but setting that aside, uh, yeah, very sexual. What we do does not provide as much societal value as someone covering the Baltimore Court or the Columbus Housing. Like, there's these million journalists out there who will never work again, who have more important skills than what we have, and. Uh, I don't know what to do about that. I think it's really frustrating. I don't want anyone to get it twisted. Um, I, I love what we do. It's really fun. It, it is different from real journalism. And there will never be a shortage of commentary from schmucks like us. Barry Weiss will make plenty of money. Andrew Sullivan will make plenty of money. Actual like investigative journalists or sort of beat reporters, they're almost in sync. That's, I think what we should be most worried about. Oh, absolutely. I mean, just look at what has happened to the collapse of local papers around the country, you know, and as these local papers have collapsed, they get swooped up and bought by these horrible, horrible conglomerates. Um, this is going to be even more true as more and more papers have faced financial ruin because of COVID and because of the, because of the quarantines, you know, Gannett or USA Today, these shitty shitty overlords will swoop in and take these dying papers gut them lay everybody off and there will be nobody to cover the school board that's a huge problem it doesn't mean that you shouldn't continue to listen to and donate to blocked and reported but it's also a huge fucking problem katie how can you say there's no investment in local reporting when the washington post dedicated two reporters days of reporting <laughs> and three thousand words to unmasking the identity of someone who wore blackface at a halloween party years ago i mean come on that's the hard-hitting local reporting we need you know i think after watergate this is probably the biggest story that they have ever broken should we keep quiet for now the fact that you alternate when you're recording this podcast between wearing blackface and whiteface <laughs> What is the combination of blackface and whiteface? It's just gray face. It's like one of those black and white cookies, like one side of your face. <laughs> Jesse, you're going to get me double, triple canceled. Oh, man. Uh, yeah, journalism screwed. I, I just want to fast forward a few months, and especially, I think, after the election, which will hopefully result in the ouster of the single individual most responsible for our present cultural meltdown. Um, I want to see what emerges. I just, I just wish, like... The problem has always been that rich people do not like to just lose money. Like maybe they do at first. They like the idea of a vanity project, but I do not, you know, people should just find good journalists and pay them and realize it's not going to make money, but I, that's just unrealistic. Yeah. And uh, on the off chance that Donald Trump does not get ousted from the White House, I do not think that things are going to get any better. Even if he does, I don't know that things are going to get any better. They might for us, but I don't know about for anybody else. As as you were saying that, I, I peeked over to Twitter and someone's like, Substackers, please bundle. I would like to read Persuasion, Sullivan, Taibi, Jesse Single, which would be $250 a year or five times the Atlantic. Yeah, I mean, there's just like, it's not sustainable. I'll, I have my yeah. 
very lucky to have my subset of readers, but like, it's just not, it's not sustainable. Um, anyway, blotchreporter.com slash Patreon, jessysingle.substack.com. There's one more thing I would like to say. There is one person who was mentioned in both Barry Weiss's and Andrew Sullivan's resignation posts. Hitler? Jesse Single. Of co- it all comes back to me. I've been telling my therapist this for years that everything cycles back to me. Every event in the world is connected to me and my beliefs and opinions and experiences. And I'm glad that like reality is finally validating that. Yeah, I wonder if it's also possible that these people are losing their jobs as a direct result of you. <laughs> is that possible? If I touch a tree, it just dies two months later. No <laughs> one knows why. Science can't explain it. Uh, yeah, I guess. Is that about it? That's it. You can always reach us, blocked and reported podcast at gmail.com. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Give us money. Start new media companies that employ us. Blah, 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 and so forth. Katie, any final messages from you? No, just give us money. This has been Blocked and Reported. I'm Jesse Single. And remember, don't stab Barry Weiss, even if it's with an emoji weapon. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, Jesse's girlfriend totally exists and is definitely not a horse. Mm-hmm.